changed since I moved to the city. Liddy, let them know that my roots in Mississippi. This is a pedagogue and D black digital black lit and composition collaboration. It's a podcast mini series that amplifies black graduate student pedagogies, practices, writings, and lived experiences. Every episode of this mini series is a conversation designed to uplift and celebrate black teachers, scholars, students. Each episode features a new perspective and each episode highlights the work of black graduate students and their family line of scholars. You can check out dblack at dblack.org. You can follow dblack on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. D-Black is an online and in-person network of Black-identified graduate students and advanced undergraduate students in fields related to the study of language. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Let's get started. That's my good friend, Raph Peters, AKA Kezo. He's a Houston-based rapper and that's his single, Liddy. You can check him out on YouTube, youtube.com backslash Kezo Music. That's K-Z-O-E Music. In this episode, I talk with Kaylin Banks-Coghill. Kaylin Banks-Coghill is a current first year PhD student in the Media, Art, and Text program at Virginia Commonwealth University. She earned her bachelor's degree in English, creative writing, poetry, and linguistics from Old Dominion University, and her master's degree in organizational communications from Bowie State University. Her interests include digital media, black Twitter, digital violence on social media, gender-based violence online, digital wake work, and hip-hop feminism in digital spaces. You can find her latest publication, A Seat at the Table, a repetitive narrative of abuse, through the International Linguistics and Communications Journal. She coins her work as Hoodrat Scholarship, which is self-proclaimed effort to create an ecosystem of work that can be cycled from the academy to the streets. She uses her digital presence and works to create spaces where anyone can engage and contribute. Her favorite poem is Won't You Celebrate With Me by Lucille Clifton, because she shouldn't still be here, but she is. Kaylin. Thanks so much for joining us. So your teaching is interconnected with your origin story. I was hoping you could talk more about that origin story and how it shapes your teaching practices and priorities. Everyone has a story, um, but particularly my origin story is I grew up in a very um, unsafe environment. And because of that, school became my safe place. So I always found school to be a place where I knew that there was a less likely chance that I would be abused. There is a less likely chance that I will be neglected, abandoned, or ignored. And I knew that if I was in a school setting, I would be able to be around other kids um, who had different backgrounds than myself. And also, I found that a lot of my teachers who just happened to be Black women for the most part, really invested in me and, and kind of filled that maternal void that I was looking for. So that really inspired my um, teaching style because I try to make sure my classroom um, is compassionate and that I extend grace to my students because what I've recognized and what I've heard a lot of students say is they feel disconnected from their instructors because their instructors sometimes have an air about them where it's like, well, I already have my degree. You need to get yours. And I want to make sure that 
I bridge that gap because I know how school feels for me and a school might be a safe space for another student. And the funny thing about my story is that I've taught in different levels of school. So I've been a preschool teacher. I've worked at a charter school. Um, and after I worked through those places, I learned a lot about patience because when you're working with preschoolers and small children, you cannot operate or speak to them the way you would speak to an adult. So you have to be very creative in the way that you um, discipline them. And you really have to think outside of the box with your lessons. So that allowed me to kind of really tap into more of my creative side because I do like graphic design and website design and poetry and stuff like that. But being a preschool teacher first really allowed me to kind of tap into that childish side of me. And, and I really saw how like those skills can be transferable to other settings. Um, so when I started teaching at the collegiate level, I was trying to figure out like, what type of professor do you want to be? Because I was already blown away that I was a professor. I was the youngest adjunct in my department. That was also a big thing because it's like, you typically, when you think of professors when you're younger, well, my generation at least, I'm a millennial, you think of like older folk or the teacher from um, Boy Meets World. Like that's what I think about when I think about professors, right? I don't think about people who look like me and you or other younger professors. I think about older folks. So I was like, oh, I'll be a professor when I'm like 50. But no, I became a professor when I was about 26. It was hard at first because I wasn't sure if I could be myself in the classroom or not because of respectability politics and just the nature of the academy um, being such a colonized space. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I could really be my full self. But the first day I walked in the class, when my students came in and they saw me and saw what I looked like and how I was dressed and they were excited, it like reaffirmed to me that like showing up as my full self is important because it gives the students an example of what it looks like to be yourself in the workplace. And that really inf influences my pedagogical practices. I make sure that it is a student as teacher, teacher as learner experience. So I learn from my students and they learn from me. I root a lot of my curriculum in Black feminist thought and feminist theories because I think it's important for us to have a care first model in the classroom. And a lot of those theories are rooted in care. Um, I also love hip hop. So I try to use a lot of hip hop theory um, in my classroom. And I like to use a lot of digital media because I'm working with students who are on TikTok, they're on Instagram and Snapchat and all those things. And I want to make sure that they're able to see how they can incorporate those things into their educational practices. So that's kind of like my journey and how I kind of crafted my own pedagogical practices because I do not teach like a typical teacher. If you look at one of my syllabi, you'll be like, you all are learning about this stuff in class? Like we talked about the busset challenge and like we talk about like sex work. I had a sex worker come in and talk to my students because I think it's important for them to have, I feel like there's a cultural competency that is important for you to be a successful person, period. But especially when you're a student because a lot of your classes are required and they may not be the best or the fun classes, but you need to be exposed to fun things. So the classroom should be kind of fun. You're gonna learn, of course, and be able to be rooted in theory and things like that. But I do want the classroom to be a space where uh, one of my students described it as it felt like a form of therapy for us. Like it felt like we were not in a classroom. We were in a space where we could kind of just express ourselves and learn at the same time. I'm thinking about your previous educational experiences being taught and mentored by Black women. How has that history informed or influenced 
your own embodiment as a teacher in the classroom? Yeah, so I did an interview uh, last fall for a professor at BCU who studies Black girlhood, and she's working on a project where she's talking to Black women about their experiences in school. And I recently got the transcript back, and I was reading it, and I talked a lot about how as a student who was extremely poor, extremely neglected, and not well taken care of, the way that my teachers and administrations at my school stepped in without being asked to really influenced how I show up for others. So they were so resourceful. I was very privileged and lucky enough to be able to go to all of these different types of enrichment programs and summer camps. And I even got to perform for Nikki Giovanni in the fifth grade. And it was all because I was this poor little black girl who didn't really have a stable environment or safe environment and teachers saw something in me and they wanted to make sure that that didn't get dimmed. And I think that um, seeing them go out of their way to make sure that I had my needs met, that typically is not the responsibility of the educator, really enforced for me that like, I'm not a self-made person. My community helped make me to who I am. And I want to be a part of the community that helps make other students into who they are. So that like directly influenced me. That type of care is just unmatched. And I still experience that care, not just from Black women. Now that I'm in my doctoral program, I've had so many um, women and um, scholars buy me books or pay for memberships for me without me even asking, just offering like, oh, I see you're interested in this. Would you be interested in joining this academic organization? I'm like, oh, I never heard of it. I was like, I'll pay your dues for the first year. And I'm like, whoa, thank you. And that type of care that I've been receiving since I was a small child has taught me how to do the same type of thing in my own classroom in my own way. I want to transition to Hood Rat Scholarship. I imagine people listening right now are like, hold up, Hood Rat Scholarship, what is that? So I'm just going to give you space to talk about Hood Rat Scholarship and what your research is doing and what you hope to see the direction of your own teaching and research take. Sure. So Hood Rat Scholarship is something that I created. So it's like my baby. And Hood Rat Scholarship is literally, it started off as when I was in my master's program and I started studying digital violence against Black women, uh, which is also something that I'm working on coining myself because you never find things that say digital violence. They always label it like doxing, revenge porn or whatever. I realized that like, if I'm going to be talking about these things that impact my community, especially women who look like me, I have to be able to articulate that not only in the academic space, but I have to be able to articulate that to my mother who does not have a high school diploma, right? Because I'm first generation all the way down to high school. So I have to be able to be to have these conversations with my family members and friends or whomever that I may meet on the street in a way that they can digest it. So Hood Rat Scholarship is literally my form of mutual aid in an education format. So I'm taking the things that I'm learning, the things that I'm theorizing, the things that I'm seeing, and I'm putting it in a, in a package that is digestible by anybody. So you don't have to be a Black woman in the academy or a Black woman from the hood or whatever to understand it. You can be a middle-aged, you know, white woman or a grandma and you can read my work or come to some of the future events that I would like to do, whether it's outreach or sister circles or speaking engagements, and you can understand what I'm talking about. The goal of Hood Rat Scholarship is to take 
things from the academy back to the streets and then bring it back to the academy. So almost just like an ecosystem of information, an ecosystem of understanding, and also an ecosystem of empathy. I think that it's important uh, for people to understand that hood rat scholarship comes from a place of pain and trauma, but the goal of hood rat scholarship is to teach people how to transmute that pain into joy, into education, into empowerment, into liberation, right? So it's important for people to understand that this is not just for the academic type folk. It's for everyone. Um, because everyone has a story, everyone has experience that they use as education. And that is important to me. Theory is cool and all. Reading all these books is great, I guess. But your experience really dictates your education and how you educate. And that's why Hood Rat Scholarship was created. And that's what it's rooted in. And some of my future goals for Hood Rat Scholarship is I really would like to get into the school systems for K-12, particularly high school, um, late middle school. And I would love to work with young women so they can understand more about how to use feminist theories and feminist practices in their everyday life. I would love to create programming, curriculum that's rooted in hip-hop theory, curriculum that's rooted in hip-hop feminism, because I think that a lot of people will benefit from understanding the connections, right? When you connect the media, different mediums of poetry, art, um, music, whatever, dance, into your curriculum, you open up the minds of your students, right? You need to tap into all their learning styles. So that's what Hood Rap Scholarship will do because I'm a person that talks in definite. It will do these things um, in the future. And I'm really excited to see how it blossoms and transforms over the years. Do you mind talking a little bit more about your research on digital violence against Black women and gender-based violence? In 2014, I was on a podcast and I used to have a podcast with two of my best friends called The Link Up. And we used to basically just talk about anything and we would talk about stuff, stuff that was happening on Twitter. It was a very raunchy podcast, might I add. And we got invited to speak on another podcast. And I made a comment about a man that was on Twitter that was well known um, who would say very like homophobic things or be very disrespectful to Black women. And I made some comments and of course he got upset and he went on the podcast too. And he made some very like disparaging remarks about me, about my appearance, about me, you know, what I should do to myself and all these things like that. And then he took it to Twitter. So he didn't leave it at the podcast like I did. He took it to Twitter and I don't know how, because my page was private, but he got photos that I had posted on my Twitter page of like selfies and stuff. And he posted them on his page to try to get people to make fun of me. And that went on for a minute. That experience really rattled me because that was the first time I had been attacked on a platform that so many people could see. And I honestly didn't know how to deal with that. So from there, I said, you know what? I've always wanted to study Black Twitter, but I want to look at violence against Black women because this can't just be happening to me. Right. So I started just observing tweets, seeing what people were retweeting, seeing what people were saying. And I was, floored by it. And that inspired my master's thesis, which is now my first publication called A Seat at the Table, A Repetitive Narrative of Abuse. And you all can check that out in the International Journal of Linguistics and um, Journalism. But that piece talks about the violence that Leslie Jones experienced during the Ghostbuster run and how this well-known conservative troll named Milo basically like sent all his trolls to harass her and 
she had no protection from Twitter. Like it took somebody else stepping in, um, a white cis male with a big following to get them to suspend this person's page. And I recently just found out this person now has Twitter again. So these types of things to me are disheartening because no, it's not just black women or black people being harassed online, but there is a, a dearth in the literature and research about how many black women are being harassed online. At first, I was just going to only focus on the violence, right? But like I was talking about with hood rat scholarship, I'm trying to find ways to transmute the pain. So now I'm looking at how hip hop artists, particularly I'm looking at Megan Thee Stallion, um, what she dealt with with getting like shot and stuff and how she dealt with that in the media. I'm looking at how she used her music performances and social media presence to empower other women and other people to not only stand up for themselves, but find different ways to deal with the digital violence that they experience because it's a systemic issue. It's not like I can send an email to Twitter and be like, hey, Twitter, get your stuff together, right? No, that's not going to happen. I don't have that type of pool. But what I can do is come up with strategies and ways of healing that we can um, apply and employ in our lives to make using social media a little bit easier because social media is not all bad, but there are bad people on social media and they don't get reprimanded for those things in a timely manner. It's really disgusting and scary because a lot of people think that online communities are not real communities, but people are really harming themselves or even afraid to be on social media because they don't know if their opinions or the way they look will make them a target, especially Black women. Kaylin, this is my last question. And this question is going to be a through line in all of the episodes in this mini series. How can the Academy support Black teachers, scholars, and students? I think the first thing that we all have to realize is that the academy is a part of a system, right? So when we understand that it's a system, it's much bigger than, oh, bring in more Black students or have more Black faculty, right? We have to abolish the system and then rebuild, right? We can't reform something that is... you can't build a house on top of a broken foundation. So I think the main thing that needs to be done is it needs to be kind of like a wipeout and build up. But some things that can be done that on a smaller scale, because that's something that will probably not happen in our lifetime, is just listen to your students and center your students' voices, center your Black staff's voices. Because speaking on their behalf is not helpful. Um, putting them into rooms where there's no one else that looks like them is anxiety inducing. Retain your Black faculty. Give them the raises they need, right? Give them the training they need and that they're asking for because when you retain faculty that not only looks like me, but other people, you get students who want to get multiple degrees at this university or, you know, recommend it to someone else, right? But we have a lot of people doing anti-racist work right now. Right. And I think it's important that um, in order for people to realistically do this anti-racist work, that they fill these spaces up with more people who look like me, because you can't talk about anti-racism when the entire department is still, you know, old white men. Right. Um, Because they're not even hiring, you know, in some places, younger white folks. Everyone is of a certain age and they've been at the school for 20, 30 years and they're not letting new people in the door. And it's important that we get some new people in the door because we have fresh, innovative ideas and we have different pedagogical ways of teaching that will really benefit the university. Thanks, Kaylin. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. 
for tuning into this Pedagogue and D Black collaboration. You to love it, turn it up when you went public. I'm my worst critic. You don't feel it, you won't hear. It. Had you waiting for a minute just to make sure you were spinning. Last song was I, right, but this time coming with a vengeance.